Welcome to the Legal Innovators interview series. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Hal Sandridge. I'm a shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney and co-head of the firm's Tampa Bay office. On this episode of the Legal Innovators interview series, we'll talk with Gerard Solis, general counsel at the University of South Florida. Gerard joined USF's general counsel's office in 2003 as an assistant general counsel and since then, he has worked in multiple practice areas and played a critical role in some of the university's important growth and strategic investments. As the general counsel for a university, Gerard regularly advises on a range of governance, labor and employment, constitutional and compliance matters. We'll spend some time talking to him today about what makes legal matters at a public university so diverse and often much more complex than many of us would think. So let's kick this off and get our discussion going with the following question. Gerard, it was this time last year when COVID-19 changed our way of life. Sandwiched between that was the Black Lives Matter movement and the financial collapse for many. How did those three things impact higher education at institutions like the University of South Florida? Obviously with COVID this time last year, we were returning our students from study abroad unexpectedly. We were transitioning to online education, uh, which a lot of people had questions about. At USF, we were fortunate because we had been doing online education for a while, but certainly not across the board. And so that was a, a transition point for us, involved labor matters, involved figuring out how to have the same educational outcomes for our students. But really the shift was moving our, our regulatory structure and how we interacted from an individual accountability point of view and an individual rights point of view to more of a collective public health standard. And we developed policies to explain that and spent a lot of time talking to our stakeholders, including the faculty, members of our community, about that approach. And I'm pleased to say that for the most part, it worked. And I give a lot of the credit of that to our students. At the same time, we were dealing with, as a nation, the impact of the death of George Floyd and increased prominence of the Black Lives Matter. That's certainly not when it started, but there was a lot of prominence. We had sort of an uh, epicenter event at USF with one evening you had what became a very violent protest with a building being burned down to another situation where students wanted to hold a vigil on campus. And you have a COVID-19 policy that says no events on campus. So how do you balance those two things when you know folks want to get together, vent, peacefully express themselves, and at the same time you have concerns about spreading a pandemic. So we had to come up with a legal framework uh, to, to manage those kinds of events. And certainly the economic pressures created by refunding funds to students for housing and for meal plans create a lot of stress for our organization and for the state overall, which you know had a significant downturn in revenue. Not a lot that you could prepare for ahead of time, but now you can prepare for return to campus. How is that going to look for UF? Certainly, as you said, the university learned a lot about the possibilities of telecommuting and remote learning in the past year, but in many instances, it's just not possible. Have you had to change or will you change your university policies? 
We will. We have learned a tremendous amount. I think what we fundamentally learned is that there's a big difference between how we've been doing business in, in a brick and mortar sense and how we've been teaching our students. Um, as I said, we've been doing online for a long time, but we've not been doing remote working for a long time, and we've realized it can work. Now, it's not going to work across the board. Folks that are student-facing in terms of instruction, uh, in terms of student services, they'll be coming back to campus this summer in a gradual, safe way, ramping up to USF looking like it did two years ago, as opposed to a, a year ago. At least that's our goal, full residence halls, vibrant campuses. Our, our students are telling us that's what they want, right? I mean, it turns out they have really good educational outcomes online, but what they miss is the interaction with their friends on, on, on campus and, and with the faculty. Um, our research mission has continued. I mean, we've been doing research nonstop through this, this process. So um, it's really been in those areas. And, and that will have some labor implications for us. We have several unions at USF, and we'll have to figure out who gets to stay working from home, if that works for them, and asking, does that really work for the university? So that, that'll be a conversation. You know, one of the funny things about it is we've always kind of wondered, what we, you know, we need more educational space, we need more lab space. Now we realize... We don't need all these offices, <laughs> so that'll create some uh, opportunities uh, for us, I'm sure, going forward. So when thinking about the legal needs of a university, it's likely many think of only students and faculty. But as you and I have discussed in the past, it's so much more than that. Can you explain more of the business side of your job and how this perception many might have of a university's legal needs is missing so much of what you do? Certainly students and faculty are always at the center of what we, we do, but I think it makes sense to think about a university as a city rather than a school, uh, at least a big research university. Um, you know, so we have significant infrastructure needs. You know, we've got roads, we've got buildings, we've got pipes, we've got equipment. We have significant populations of employees, students, and visitors that come along, and any time you put together that many people, you're going to have interactions both positive and negative. So we've got workplace policies. We have a law enforcement system. Um, we have a research enterprise, of course, at USF uh, that involves a pretty complex regulatory structure. And all of that takes funds. And those resources, not just in a time of COVID and, and declining state revenues, but at any, and even the best of times, you know, USF has to be very agile and creative. We have to be savvy in terms of when we're able to bond certain resources and raise funds from other sources, whether it's uh, through licensing, whether it's through partnerships, just to keep the enterprise functioning and having the funds available to make strategic investments as well. So you somewhat touched on this, but USF may not have the same amount of resources as some of your sister schools in the Florida public university system. In what ways does that change your job as a general counsel? I have only respect for the folks at those, you know, at the University of Florida, talented people that work there and go to school there and graduated there. But we're not them. They've been around a lot longer. They have many more resources. And with so many demands on the state budget, it's just difficult to see how that might equalize. So it, it, in my job as general counsel is working with university leadership to identify those community partnerships. That's where we will find our energy and resources 
and uh, opportunities to collaborate to bring the university forward. That's the resource that USF has that these other institutions don't have. We have the Tampa Bay region and the vibrant communities that are here and the entrepreneurs and the businesses and frankly, the local government that's very engaged in this as well. A good example of that is our partnership, our enhanced affiliation, I should say, with Tampa General Hospital, which is the combining of certain aspects of their business and the university's operations to improve healthcare in the Tampa Bay region. So as general counsel, you can't go down to TGH and say, this is how it's going to be. You know, here's the document sign here. You can't really do that at USF anyway, either. Uh, but it's more about seeing where the common interests are and finding opportunities to, to align our interest and seeing then where we can work together then and find another party that we might be able to influence and persuade to join us if the interests align. Tell us about your legal experience prior to joining USF. How is working in the legal field at a public institution, how does that differ from working not just in private practice, but in-house at a private company or even a publicly traded company? So before USF, I worked in a firm here in downtown Tampa, a labor and employment boutique. That kind of experience is vital for learning customer service and value. Um, One of the things I didn't learn there, however, because I was pretty new in my practice, was some of the nuance of practicing at a university, a public university. First and foremost, in the private sector, you enjoy certain opportunities that just don't exist under the public records law in the state of Florida and the open meetings law. There you have competing interests, right? You've got an obligation to the taxpayers of the state to be transparent and accountable. But then also there are times when it's not in in the interests of an individual's privacy or perhaps the, the, it's not appropriate for an initiative to be disclosed, or certainly in litigation, you don't, you don't want to have to produce materials before you're required to do so by the court, um, or rather by the rules of civil procedure. The other thing that's very different that I was not initially prepared for is universities have complex governance structures. Uh, they have both shared governance relative to faculty, um, and where process is as important sometimes as outcome. And so not... If, if you don't recognize that early on, you will have a difficult time representing or working at a university and understanding the level of consultation that's needed. It can also be a little bit of a hindrance if you don't know who the decision makers really are at a university and understanding the regulatory environments that universities work in. You know, on, on one level, we do a lot of public-private partnerships at USF and in the State University System of Florida. But there is a heavy regulatory structure around that. There needs to be an awareness of where the political attitudes are about P3s. And that shifts a little bit from time to time. Is it an opportunity to find commonality and benefit? Or is it an opportunity for the university to potentially have a negative business transaction? There have been times when folks thought that P3s took advantage of public institutions. And there have been other times when they're like, we're not doing enough. Uh, our regulations are too cumbersome. So you have to be kind of attuned to that, where that political momentum is when you're putting together some of those more complex deals. Gerard, you also took an interesting path to the legal profession in general, spending time as an English teacher in Japan. And even after getting your law degree, you went back to Japan to practice there a bit. Tell us what that was like and how it shaped your personal perspective on litigation. I did enjoy a great deal being an English teacher in Japan, working in a corporate legal department in Japan was a little different experience, but valuable to me. What you learn in, in that kind of corporate environment in Japan is having a very different perspective, for example, on employment laws and what might be an actionable 
uh, case versus what might be something that folks in, in that particular country at that particular time would not have perceived as, as any kind of issue. Uh, sexual harassment uh, laws in particular come to mind there. If anything, it's making sure that you understand, as we're required to understand under Rule 2.1 of our model rules of uh, professional conduct, that when you give advice, you need to do so independently with candor and fully understanding where your client is socially, politically, economically, and, and so on. And um, I spent a lot of time in Japan trying to explain to very well-intentioned, very smart individuals there the application of U.S. law to their, to their operations in the United States and seeing a pretty significant disconnect and being able to, to understand where those disconnects are, or at least that they exist, I don't pretend to always understand them, um, has been very valuable to me uh, advising the university in, in diverse matters, including litigation. Your experience teaching in Japan was quite different. Tell us a little bit about where you were and who you interacted while you were teaching English in Japan. I was in rural northern Japan. I, I was on the jet program, the Japan Exchange Teaching Program, I didn't know at the time was extremely competitive. When I went to my interview, I said, I want to go rural and northern Japan. And they said, deal, <laughs> no problem. Uh, because everyone wants to go to to Tokyo. And if you've been to Tokyo, then you see why. Or, or, or Osaka, which is close to Kyoto, which is beautiful. I mean, all, all of Japan really is, is beautiful. I, I, I visited lots of parts of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I lived in a, in a town of about 1,400 people. I taught junior high school students. Um, the name of my town was Tatewa, which means lily pad. And um, uh, in, in some cases, I was the first foreigner that some of the kids in the town had, had seen. And, and for all intents and purposes, I was sort of a living, breathing tape recorder. I worked with a very capable English teacher uh, who was very committed to her students. And I was there really for grassroots internationalization. And that was a great, great experience. The Japanese were eager to laugh, eager to, to welcome me to their culture and um, a very positive experience. My final question, I'm going to take you from the lily pads of Japan to the boardroom of the universities. Um, the career paths for university leaders may not lend them a keen understanding of courtroom proceedings, which is completely understandable. What should counsel be mindful of when dealing with university officials and potential depositions? I think the first thing to understand is, or, or to recognize and be comfortable with, is that you will not be the smartest person in the room from, from the start. That's a good thing about working in university. You learn that really quickly and you learn to live with it in a good way. The other thing is for as capable and seasoned as these leaders often are, the career path they have been on to become a university high-level administrator often is a path uh, through other universities, maybe becoming a department chair, maybe then becoming uh, a director or a dean, then becoming a provost, and then finally becoming a president. There may not be a detour into the private sector. And attorneys like me work really hard to keep universities out of court. So it may be that they have never really been deposed. It may be that they've never even really seen the inside of a courtroom. Now with some direction and a little bit of time explaining the process, which I think will be very, very well received, they'll be great because you are dealing with very smart, very capable people. But just be aware that they may not have the background that some of your corporate clients have. Their, their career path and life experiences 
have likely not led them down that path. And as I often say to them, you know, to your credit, you have not been involved in a lot of litigation in your life. You know, I, I mean it as a compliment, but you may want to start with some of the basics and, until you get to know that client and, 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 and establish just, you know, what their prior experiences are. Great advice. We are getting close to the end of our show time and we want to wrap things up with what we call in closing. Gerard, I'm going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions that are a little on the lighter side and ask that you respond quickly. First, your son plans to study abroad in Japan later this year. What advice would you give him and any other students considering traveling to Japan? Eat whatever is put before you. That will open doors every time. Number two, how much do you miss the community environment of a college campus like USF? That's a lot of uh, what I look forward to uh, in terms of getting up and going to work. Many of us have career role models we've tried to model ourselves after. Do you have a legal role model? And if so, who is it? On that level, I'd say Justice Louis Brandeis is a a legal role model for me. Um, I don't presume to approximate to his stature, but um, his his work in particular on free expression, I use often in my practice, and I'm blown away also by how beautifully written his stuff is. I think we all miss the things we used to do before COVID-19. Once this is all over, what's the first thing you'll do? I would probably travel. I think a lot of us miss traveling. And I I really like traveling to those kind of springtime events like weddings and reunions and graduations. Those are, so I hope to be able to do that soon. Gerard, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure chatting with you and learning more about your career and about the University of South Florida. This will wrap up this edition of the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Be sure to join us next time. Until then, I'm Hal Sandridge of Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney. Thanks for listening.